Hear the word of the Lord from Nehemiah 12, 27 through 13, 3. And at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgivings, and with singing, with cymbals, harps, and lyres. And the sons of the singers gathered together from the district surrounding Jerusalem and from the villages of the Netophathites, also from Beth Gilgal, and from the region of Geba and Asmaveth. For the singers had built for themselves villages around Jerusalem. And the priests and the Levites purified themselves, and they purified the people and the gates and the wall. Then I brought the leaders of Judah up onto the wall and appointed two great choirs that gave thanks. One went to the south on the wall to the dung gate, and after them went Hoshea and half the leaders of Judah, and Azariah, Ezra, Meshulam, Judah, Benjamin, Shemaiah, and Jeremiah, and certain of the priests' son with trumpets, Zechariah, the son of Jonathan, son of Shemaiah, son of Madaniah, son of Micaiah, son of Zakur, son of Asaph, and his relatives, Shemaiah, Azarel, Malali, Galali, Mei, Nethanel, Judah, and Hanani, with the musical instruments of David, the man of God. And Ezra the scribe went before them. At the fountain gate they went up straight before them by the stairs of the city of David, at the ascent of the wall, above the house of David, to the water gate on the east. The other choir of those who gave thanks went to the north, and I followed them with half of the people, on the wall, above the tower of the ovens, to the broad wall, and above the gate of Ephraim, and by the gate of Yeshana, and by the fish gate, and the tower of Hananel, and the tower of the hundred, to the sheep gate. And they came to a halt at the gate of the guard. So both choirs of those who gave thanks stood in the house of God, and I and half of the officials with me, and the priests Eliakim, Maasiah, Menamon, Micaiah, Elonai, Zechariah, and Hanani, with trumpets, and Maasiah, Shemaiah, Eleazar, Uzai, Jehohanan, Melchijah, Elam, and Ezer. And the singers sang with Jezariah as their leader, and they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced. For God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and children also rejoiced, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. On that day, men were appointed over the storerooms, the contributions, the first fruits, and the tithes, to gather into them the portions required by the law for the priests and for the Levites according to the fields of the towns. For Judah rejoiced over the priests and the Levites who ministered. And they performed the service of their God and the service of purification as did the singers and the gatekeepers, according to the command of David and his son Solomon. For long ago, in the days of David and Asaph, there were directors of the singers, and there were songs of praise and thanksgiving to God. And all Israel in the days of Zerubbabel and in the days of Nehemiah gave the daily portions for the singers and the gatekeepers, and they set apart that which was for the Levites, and the Levites set apart that which was for the sons of Aaron. On that day they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people, and in it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the water, should ever enter the assembly of God. For they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. As soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. This is the word of the Lord. Well, let us uh, pray as we ask God for his blessing upon, upon his word. Father, thank you for 
your word. Thank you that you would reveal yourself to us. Father, we know what the prophet Isaiah said, which is that your thoughts are not our thoughts, your ways are not our ways. And so, Father, we humbly come before you and your word knowing that you, you are thinking differently than we are. You, you, you do things differently than we expect. And so, God, we pray that you would break through our expectations and that you would be showing us who you are, how you work, and that, Father, through your Holy Spirit, you might be moving and working and giving life where life needs to be given, to be giving light and, and heat, Father, where it needs. And so please bless this time, bless, bless this conversation that we have with one another, with your word, with your spirit, we pray. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. One of the habits that um, I and my wife have had uh, when individuals graduate either from high school or college is that we provide a book that's written by John Piper. It says it's called uh, Don't Waste Your Life. And so it makes sense that we would send this to them. We, we want them to be thinking deeply about what it is that they're going to do with the abilities and skills that God has given to them and that they would, do, they would use it in a way that is going to be profitable and in a way that's going to make the greatest of impact. Well, this passage that we have here is interesting because it is revealing to us individuals who are using the skills that they have been given, using uh, the, the, the personalities that God has given to them, using the circumstances and situations that, that God has given to them, and they're using it in a way that they're dedicating it to the Lord. And what we will see here is we're going to see that they're, they're doing, they're, they're moving in such a way that they are doing it with great um, passion, that there's what I would call hot white worship that we find in here. And the beauty of this passage is that it's been given to us as people coming downstream that God intends for all of those who worship him to come to a place where they worship him out of a great joy for him. In other words, the he, he, we typically will, will maybe separate uh, our joys from what we truly worship, not realizing that actually God works through our joys. Whatever brings us greatest joy is what we're ultimately going to worship. And God wants to show us that he is the one who is ultimately worth our time, ultimately worth our joy within our lives. I uh, grew up in Colorado. My dad was a um, teacher, and so that afforded us summers off. And when you live in Colorado and summers off, you get to go up into the mountains. I love the mountains. And one of the things as a child that I think is still as an adult I love, my sisters and myself, we love the campfire. Uh, that evening in the summertime, you'd come out of hot Denver and you'd go up into the mountains and it'd be cool. And you, it was so cool, you would want to have a campfire. Now, as a child, it always amazed me because the next morning it would also be cold. And so I could hardly wait. I could hear my dad stirring. He'd get up. He'd get that campfire going. But I'd walk out there and I noticed something. And that is that he didn't use a match. But rather what he'd do is he'd put a little more kindling on that gray heap that was our campfire last night. And then he would lean down and he would blow on it. And then a remarkable thing happened. It would start on fire and we would have a flame. Well, this is the image that I think we need to have of what God wants to do within our hearts and lives. That there is this ember that God wants to give, really a spark that God wants to give to each one of us in such a way that through that spark, it then gets inflamed into this great hot white flame uh, for him. And I think we can see how that's done here within uh, this passage and some other places that God has given to us in his word. So bottom line, this is what I want you to see. God pursues his glory 
glory. God pursues his glory by sparking in us an inextinguishable dedication to him that grows white hot over time. So let's first get the context of our passage. Now, uh, Nehemiah, six chapters earlier, we already learned there that he has, that the wall was complete. So Nehemiah chapter six, verse 15 says this. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Elul in a remarkable, and I'm adding that to the text, in a remarkable 52 days. Now, the reason why I'm adding that to the text is because the next verse, verse 16, which says this, when all of our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. In face of all of the barriers to repairing the wall, it was completed in 52 days so that even the enemies of God's people had to concede God was with them. God was behind this. Or as we would say today, it was a God thing. Now, in the writing of Nehemiah, one would think that what we have here in our passage, the dedication of the wall, that it would come immediately after verse 16 of chapter 6. But it doesn't. And the delay is instructive. See, God has not called Nehemiah just to build a wall. God has called him to something bigger. God has called him to play a part in revitalizing not just the city, but the people of God. Or better, we might say, God has called Nehemiah in his particular place. He's the governor. He's what we do, the kingly role in, in, this, in, in the roles that God has given. He's the governor. He has called him to really bring a revival. Now, I shy away from the word revival because re that word can bring some Im images or some freight with it that I think we need to be careful of. See, when we think of revival, in the olden days, they used to have tents and they'd set up a tent and someone would come in and they would have a revival. And that is that, you know, hopefully the word of God, the gospel is being preached to individuals there and they're coming to faith in Jesus Christ. And we say that's a revival. Or in the more modern days, someone would rent out an auditorium, same thing would happen. People would come to faith in Jesus Christ and we would call it a revival. But what we, f we see within that word of revival, we see it is more about individuals coming to personally to faith in Christ, Lord willing. And so it's more about just an individual. But that's not how revival is shown in Scripture, nor is it shown in history after Scripture. See, revival has something to do not just with individuals, although it does individuals, it has something to do with individuals who have been changed, who are moving out into the community so that all realms of life are being affected by the gospel that has occurred within the hearts and lives of individuals. So families and businesses and civic government, the day-to-day -day life of the city. And that's what we have here in the book of Nehemiah. God has called him to play his part in revival that changes everything. So a lot has occurred between the, the day uh, that the wall was completed and where we have here the dedication. See, what Nehemiah does is then he turns his attention to repopulating or revitalizing the city of Jerusalem. In our sacred city mission, we would say that he was primarily about renewing the cities. But secondarily contributing to the making of disciples, knowing that spiritual revival or revitalization and the physical revival or revitalization, they go hand in hand. 
That is, disciple-making occurs in the context of renewing the city, and that the spiritual and the physical work in tandem. Chapter 7, then, verses 1 through 3, he makes some key appointments. He then creates a list of all the returning exiles with the civic objective of determining who was available to populate the city and to revitalize the city. And so we put up with chapter 7, verses 4 through 73, all of those names. Remember that? Wasn't that great? <laughs> all those names. Ah! But he knows that crucial to the revitalization of the city is not just capable leaders and willing citizens. And so... He knows that city culture comes downstream from their faith or religion. Nehemiah knew that the city's hope for revitalization, the revitalization of the civic systems and of the economic conditions of, and of the brick, brick and mortar rebuilding of infrastructure required first a revival in the heart of God's people. And so what have we seen in the past months as we've been in Nehemiah? Well, chapter 8, a reading of and joyful response to the law of God. Chapter 9, a confession of sin. Chapter 10, a renewal of the covenant, a spiritual revival. And out of the spiritual revival is a call to urban renewal through the repopulation of the city with the people of God. And what we have seen with Nehemiah is that individual people do matter. The individual people matter no matter if you can say or remember their names. So, I mean, how else do we account for those four lists of names that we have stood up for? Each Sunday morning, you're probably not aware of this, but we gather, all those who are part of the worship service gather downstairs, pretty much everybody who's part of the worship service gather downstairs, and we pray. We pray for the services. We pray for you. It was in that prayer time last Sunday that one man prayed something, something like this in, in light of that long list was the last list that we, we read last week in chapter 11. He prayed, Father, we thank you this morning that like those people, our names are written in the palm of your hand and that you care for each one of us. <laughs> that was most appropriate for that individual to pray that because you don't see him do his part in the role. Matter of fact, he gets here right around seven o'clock and he and a team of individuals do this, but one from that team each week and they bring all these heavy bins up from downstairs to get all the stuff set up for worship here and out in, out in the lobby area. He brings up all the stuff for the coffee <laughs> and you never see it. He comes here and he sets up all the signs out there. He makes certain that there's salt on the ground, on the, but you never see, see that individual. But that individual has a name. His name last week was Alexis Garcia. What we enjoy as, a, as people of the worship service, we enjoy it through the use of, through the, through the people, through the people rising up and being dedicated to the work that they are doing here. And a lot of us don't even know who they are. We don't even know their names. And yet we enjoy what God has done through, through them. And so names do matter. People do matter. And so those decisions always, uh, the decisions that, that individuals give are always will be coming down from what we worship. See, there's four significant names, a list of names in Nehemiah. And 
it is a reminder that however isolated our particular task or challenge may be, however anonymous we are uh, to the people of God, every person and their particular task or challenge is nevertheless necessary as it is always part of a greater whole. What we do, what you do in your work is really important for our cities. What, what you do in your neighborhood, where you live in your neighborhood is important. Our families, whatever decisions we make, family, church, or civic, it always affects those around both believers and unbelievers. And since those decisions always come downstream from what we worship, what we worship is absolutely important because it determines what we're going to do with our lives, how we're going to dedicate our lives. It determines if we're going to waste it or not. So... God's people in Nehemiah's day had worshipped God. So let's look at this white hot worship of God. Passage begins this way. And at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem. Now that word dedication comes from the Latin verb meaning to offer or to give. So when something is dedicated, it means to, that we are giving or offering something or someone for control and use. So when something or someone is dedicated to the Lord, it means that it or they are given to him for his control and use. Next week, we're going to have a dedication, parent dedication for those parents who want to dedicate their child. And what they're doing is that they're dedicating, they're offering themselves up as parents to God and saying, please use me in the life of my children. But they're also doing this. They're, they're dedicating their children. So they're saying, God, I want you to take a hold of the child, have control, dedicating, giving them up to the Lord that the Lord might do a work within the heart and life of the, of the child. So here, God's people were offering, what? The wall. The wall for his control and use. In other words, they understood that they could have crafted a great wall, a wonderful wall, a wall that, that seemingly was impenetrable, but apart from God, actually using that wall to protect the people, they knew it was useless and pointless. In other words, God is absolutely important. And what he's doing there in Jerusalem. And so it represents, the wall is representing how God is going to use it. So uh, I want you to notice something here with regards to the dedication. The dedication is an act of worship. And that dedication, this the dedication idea is nestled throughout this kind of flow of this passage. Now the flow is pretty simple to follow. Verses 27 through 30 is this. They're preparing for worship. 27 through 30. And then we have the actual act of worship, 31 through 43. Actual act of worship. And then finally, we have the result of worship, and that is 44 through chapter 13, verse 3. The result of worship. And in this is nestled, is nestled this dedication. So look again, verses 27 through 29. And at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgivings and with singing and with cymbals and harps and lyres. And the sons of the singers gathered together from the districts surrounding Jerusalem and from the villages of the Netophathites, also from Bith Gilgal and from the region of Geba and Asmaveth, for the singers had built for themselves villages around Jerusalem. Jerusalem. So what you have here is you have Levites who are dedicated to the service of worship, and you have singers who are dedicated to their craft by providing superior vocal music. Look down at verse 35. 
in the actual act of worship. And certain of the priest's sons with trumpets. We've got Zechariah. He comes through a lineage. We'll look at that in a minute. Verse 36, and his relatives, Shemaiah and Azarel and Milali and Gilali and Moiah and Nathaniel and Judah and Hananiah with the musical instruments of David, the man of God. So what do we have here? Well, two things I want you to notice. First, there were musical instruments that were dedicated for worship. You have musicians who are dedicated like the vocalists to their craft. And then secondly, you have this guy, Zechariah, and we have this, he's the only one who gets the lineage. There's, it's notable uh, lineage that he has, and it goes all the way down to a man called Asaph. And Asaph is notable in that he headed the service of music in the regions, sorry, in the reigns of David and Solomon when the tabernacle and then the temple were constructed. And we have 12 Psalms that indicate Asaph as the author. So in other words, he was a writer of music. And he was a leader of music and his skill was passed down from generation to generation to generation till we get to Zechariah. And today we would call Zechariah Joel Bickford. <laughs> Dedicated to the leading of worship in music. Dedicated. But there's more in terms of dedication. Verses 31 through 43, the actual dedication service. Look at verse 31. What do we have? I brought the leaders of Judah up onto the wall and appointed two great choirs that gave thanks. Down to verse 38. The other choir of those who gave thanks went to the north and I followed them with half the people. It's easy to picture the procession here. The dedication ceremony consisted of civic leaders and it consisted of spiritual leaders following the two great choirs and instrumentalists are these leaders and they are proceeding up onto the wall. They get up to the top of the wall. One goes south, the other goes north and they come around and they, they come together at the, at the uh, gate of the guard. Now, what, are the, what's the guard, what is the guard protecting there? The temple. So they, they meet together, they go back down, they get into the Temple Mount, and then they have this great worship service, this, this, uh, this wonderful choir coming together, two coming together to be one. Now, who leads the one on the right? Well, look at the end of verse 36. Who leads it? Ezra. Ezra the scribe went before them. Now, we studied Ezra, and we know Ezra really condensed down in one verse, this is Ezra. Ezra chapter 7 verse 10 writes, Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. Ezra was dedicated. He was dedicated to the word of God, to study it, to obey it, to teach it. He was dedicated to leading the spiritual renewal of God's people. Well, who led the other procession? Well, verse 38. I. I did. Not me. 
I, I followed them with the other half of the people on the wall. That's Nehemiah, the, our, our writer here, the civic leader, uh, this one who is fulfilling kind of this, this kingly role. Nehemiah dedicated and even staked his career on the repair of the wall. But more than that, he, he, he staked himself on the revival of the city. So we have, what have, we have a civic leader and we have a spiritual leader dedicated to the revival of the city of God. Oh, but there's even more dedication in the flow of this worship. See, the wall, the wall itself was built by individuals. And they were built by individuals who are named and unnamed. They're built by individuals who have, who have skills and who don't have too many skills. People offered up their bodies to the working of the wall. But it doesn't stop there. So, see, look at the last section of the flow of the narrative, the result of worship, verses 44 through chapter 13, verse 3. First, the people dedicated their offerings to the continued work of the ministry. Look at verse 44. Verse 44. On that day. Now, that's an imprecise phrase and can mean at that time, so that was probably over a period of time. So, Wrong timing. I'm not, I'm not there yet. Oh, well. <laughs> On that day, men were appointed to be in charge of the storerooms for the contributions, first fruits, and tithes. So these are three different types of, uh, of offerings. The first is contributions, which were the free offerings of gifts to meet particular needs of the temple. The second are first fruits, which are uh, uh, the annual giving of the first of the harvest. Being an agrarian uh, you know, society, this was a significant portion of the offerings. Third were the tithes, which were based upon God's ongoing provisions. So they were providing these, look there, from the fields around the towns they were to bring into the storerooms the portions required by the law for the priests and the Levites. And what we see is revival and thus the giving is not solely from the excitement of the moment or out of the enthusiasm of emotions, but revival looks like obedience to the word of God. They gave as required by the law. But it didn't exclude the affections or the emotions. Look, verse 44. For Judah, all God's people there in Judah, rejoiced over the priests and the Levites who had ministered. The people of the province of Judah were moved within their hearts and thankful for the work of the Levites and the priests who stood on their behalf. Their spiritual good was results of their spiritual leaders, and they were thankful, and so they gave with joy. And this work that the spiritual leaders did, look there at verse 45, they performed the service of their God and the service of purification. We saw that already in verse 30. It included this, this spiritual work of representing man before God, but interestingly, not, not just sacrifices, but also music and gatekeeping. Continue there on verse 45. As did also the musicians and gatekeepers. These dedicated to the leading of worship, they did it through music. And so we understand the importance of theologically being astute and morally pure and careful with their crafting. But gatekeepers, what do they need to know? Well, they need to know the holiness of God. They need to know the means of being made right with God. They need to know the importance of worship because they're the ones who said, yea or nay, coming into the temple mounts. 
And look how they did it. According, verse 45, according to the commands of David and his son Solomon, who had planned for, built, and established the first temple worship. In other words, they knew the word of God equally as well. They had dedicated, these people had dedicated their financial means to the work of God. And then secondly, they were dedicated to the word of God. And we see that in chapter 13, verse 1. So on that day, they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people. And it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite shall ever enter the assemble, should ever enter the assembly of God. Now, why not? Well, there was a history. Look at verse 2. For they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet, out, yet our God turned turned the curse into a blessing. Hmm. Now, this is, what, this is the story. About 600 years earlier, God's people were going into the promised land, but they had to go through Moab and they had to go through Ammon. And going through there, they were kind of hoping that they would just be left alone, but maybe some food and some water. But the Moabites and the Ammonites They hated God, and they hated the people of God. And so they hired a man, a kind of a wicked, uh, dark prophet, priest, whatever we want to call him. They hire this man named Balaam, and they, they, the Balaam goes out on this, this cliff edge, and he sees the, God's people coming. And so he's supposed to curse them, but it's almost comical because God will not allow Balaam to curse the people of God. And so he does it twice, and then he does it a third time. And each time he, he, he calls out, I want, to, I want to curse these people, but he can't not God forces him to bless them. Now, the people of Ammon and Moab, they became symbolic of anyone who hates God and hates God's people. See, it's, it's not so much that they're from Moab or from Ammon, it's where their hearts are in terms of their, of God, the living God. And so it's not only those who are Moabites and Ammonites, but anybody who's rejected God, he says, no, they cannot be part of the worship. And so they obey, verse 3, as soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. In other words, all those who had rejected God as their Savior. Now, we have a wonderful book in our Old Testament called the Book of Ruth. And the book of Ruth is this beautiful picture of a Moabite woman who comes to faith in the God of Israel. It's a beautiful picture. And so God warmly embraces those who will turn from their sins and turn to him for their salvation. So they're dedicated. These people are dedicated to the work of God and they're dedicated to the word of God. Dedication is nestled throughout this flow of this narrative. But the question is, what is the engine behind their dedication? What has what is inspired them? What has moved them forward in their dedication of God? Well, we find it there in verse 43, really the key verse of this passage, verse 43. It says this, They offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced, for God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and children also rejoiced, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. See, they offered, look at their great sacrifices that day. Now, these aren't the sacrifices of purification. No, these were all, those were already done in verse 30. No, these were the sacrifices of thanksgiving. 
Uh, these are expressions of deep gratefulness for the kindness and goodness of God to act on their behalf. These are sacrifices where God's people actually fellowship with him by enjoying a part of the sacrifice itself. There's a sense that there's this excessiveness of their, of, their, of their enjoyment that characterizes the celebration in light of God's extravagant grace on their behalf. And notice the effect this worship has on the family, verse 43 there. And the women and children also rejoiced. And look who also were affected by the worship. And the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. If you've ever lived around a college or professional football stadium or perhaps arrived after the game has gone, begun as a ticket holder, the roar by the crowd after a great play is kind of is, is out there. It, you, you, you think this, you think, I wonder what I just missed. <laughs> And that's exactly what the people around Jerusalem were asking. What have I missed? It's exactly what the enemy of God's people were wondering. What have I missed? Well, those non-Israelites who lived around Jerusalem, their enemies, what they missed was the joy a joy that was heard, did you see there? A joy that was heard far away. See, several weeks ago in Dr. Alex's message, he spoke about the magnetic nature of joy. It causes those around it to wonder how to get it. So again, here's my main point. God pursues his glory by sparking in us an inextinguishable dedication to him that grows white hot over time. So how do we get it? How did they get such joy? How do we get such joy? Well, we go back to my campfire image, and it all begins with a little spark. For God, look there at verse 43. See, here's the, here's the good news. Here's the gospel. Verse 43, right in the middle. For God had made them rejoice with joy. It was all God's doing. That's the gospel. It wasn't them doing it. It was God doing it. We've learned over the weeks that God had has used two men, Nehemiah, civic leader in his kingly role. We've seen Azariah in his priestly and prophetic role. But these two sinful, fallible men are pointing really to the one man, in whom is prophet, priest, and king. This is all appointing to this one man, and his name is Jesus. It is Jesus who takes the word of God and creates in us a light and heat of understanding, much like he did when he created light in the beginning. And so we turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 
See, Paul, as he's writing the Corinthians, he's, he's trying to explain why it is that when the gospel goes out and people hear the gospel, why is it that some people trust in it and some people don't trust in it? And wh what's going on there? And so he picks up, we'll pick up there in verse 3, 2 Corinthians 4, and it says this, he writes this, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Now, listen, look at this. For God said, God, who said, now he's going to quote Genesis chapter 1. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God, where? In the face of Jesus Christ. He, he speaks lights into the soul. So it is here that if you are here with faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, it is because God spoke lights into your soul. There's not a person sitting here who came to faith on their own. It is God who, just like he created light in creation, he creates new creation by saying, faith, faith faith. It's out of his mercy, the first cause of a spark in our soul, that it produces a joy, and that joy produces a dedication of our lives that brings joyful clarity in the face of all kinds of difficulties. See, what you want in your life is a joy that will get you through all of the difficulties of life. Listen to how he continues here. Verse 7, 2 Corinthians 4. But we have this treasure, speaking of the gospel, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. See, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, oh man, I'm perplexed most of the time. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying about the, in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be also manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke, we also believe. And so we also speak. So that if your faith is as small as a mustard seed, that's from God. And that's enough. <laughs> and out of that we speak. We also believe, we also speak. Verse 14, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is for all for your sake that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. Here's the good news. God does it for you. Foundation to your personal joy is this reality you will only have joy if you recognize it is God who's the one who sparks that in your life by faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. He makes it so. It's a spark. 
And Jesus is committed to that spark. And I know that, we know that because of Matthew 12, 20, where it says, a bruised reed, Jesus will not break, and a smoldering wick, he will not quench. Now, what's a smoldering wick? Well, it's a wick that is barely on fire. Matter of fact, you don't even see a flame. You only see smoke. But if you gently blow on it, you will see a glow, a little bright glow. That may be you today. You're more smoke than flame. But there's an ember. And he's committed to that little ember in your soul. That's why I say that God pursues his glory by sparking in us an inextinguishable dedication to him. If God is committed from keeping that little ember in your heart alive, no one else, including yourself, can extinguish it. And matter of fact, he has an end game for that little spark in you. Matthew 13, 43, here's the end game. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. And then he writes, he who has ears, let him hear. It's like, I can't believe it. Oh, just listen. <laughs> he who has ears, let him hear. My end game for you, believer, you who have this spark of trust in Christ as your Lord and Savior, that little thing you're smoking today, my end game for you is that you're going to sun, you're going you're gonna to shine like the sun in your righteousness. God pursues his glory by sparking in us an inextinguishable dedication to him that grows white hot over time. So what can we do to position ourselves, believer, to flame up that ember? Well, I think there's two commitments that we can make very quickly. We're at the end here, I know. So we find it back in our passage. You really can't see it in the first, in the English, only in the Hebrew. But verse 31 begins this way. It says, Then I brought the leaders of Judah unto the wall and appointed two great choirs that gave thanks. That phrase, great choirs that gave thanks, is one Hebrew word, is tudets, and it means thanksgivings. So literally, we would have to read this. I brought the leaders of Judah up unto the wall and appointed two thanksgivings. And then as we go down in the passage, it talks about that one that goes south. It's a, it's a choir of thanksgiving. Well, it's really no... Thanksgivings went south, and Thanksgivings went north, and Thanksgivings met together at the, at the guard gates, and they went into the temple. Thanksgivings went into the temple. See, the choir itself was to embody. The choirs embody something that is true within their hearts, and that they are people who recognize the grace of God within their lives, and so their lives are characterized by Thanksgiving. And we get this on the opposite side. See, somebody walks into the door, and we say, oh boy, here comes that complainer. Oh boy, here comes that thanksgiving. Hmm. God calls us to embody thanksgiving within our lives. And so we position ourselves for this, this little spark to flame up as we become people who are known not as complainers, but as people who are known to be thanks, thankful. Thanksgivings. Second thing we know that will flame this up is music. 
And we've seen this all the way through this, this movement here that, that we have here. God uses music in such a way that flames up our soul. And so last passage, Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5 begins this way. Peter, I mean Paul, he identifies believers as beloved children of God and of, of, and of saints. That is people who are loved by God and who are separate from the world. And then Paul describes what is to be true of us beloved saints or of us, uh, of our beloved children or of our saints. It's this, Ephesians 5, 18. Did you get it? Oh, right. Thank you. End of there, it says this, be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always. Music, thanks. And for everything to God, the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. God pursues his glory by sparking in us an inextinguishable dedication to him that grows white hot over time. Perhaps today you're here, um, you've given, you've tried some things that bring joy into your life, and it's failed you. And you're hearing the voice of God, and you recognize You've tried everything, nothing's working, it's all failing, you're failing, and you're hearing the voice of God saying, I'll do it for you. If you hear that voice, today's the day of your salvation. Today's the day of which you begin a joy that is everlasting and eternal. Trust in what Christ has done on your behalf. As we take this bread and this cup, what we're going to do is we're going to be reminding ourselves that Jesus Christ took our sins in his body and paid the penalty and died for those sins. That he shed his blood for the forgiveness of our sins. He gave his life for you. He lived the life you should have lived, and then he died the death you should die. Trusting in what he has done for you, God says, you call to me, I'll give you life. Trust in him today as your Lord and Savior. Believer, let us dedicate ourselves to thanksgiving and good times and music as we worship together. Father, thank you. Thank you for this passage. Thank you for what you are doing in life. Thank you, God. There are many here who, who can only say it is because you sparked in us faith that we're here today and we have joy. Flame that joy up in our hearts and our lives, we pray. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.